For me, informed consent starts with my time prenatally with a family. And a lot of that is discussing how, hey, this is how oftentimes things are presented in labor. A lot of times you will have a nurse or midwife or doctor say, we're going to do this. That is, even when it is not presented as a choice, it is always a choice, except for in that very rare, rare situation where there's an emergency and that will be made clear to you and we'll make sure you know what's going on, but that is so rare. Welcome to the One Strong Mama podcast, the no BS show that's not afraid to get real about all things pregnancy, birth, postpartum, and beyond. We're talking with visionaries who are challenging the status quo and changing the world one pregnancy and one birth at a time. I'm Lindsay McCoy, mama four, exercise physiologist, doula, and childbirth educator. My passion is making pregnancy, childbirth, and recovery better. And I'm also passionate about coconut LaCroix. And I'm Lauren O'Hayan, a mom of three girls, lover of all things tropical. I have never had coconut LaCroix, and I am known for my work with the core and pelvic floor. Informed consent. It's a big topic, and let's be real, it's not always easy no matter what role we're in. If you're a doula, what do you do if you see your client not getting informed consent? If you're a midwife or a doctor, how do you educate your patients and speak with your patients when choices do need to be made? This topic is hugely important for all of us working with basically everyone, all people. And you'll find out from the birth queens today how to do it right. Ali Farrow and Carly Nettle are birth workers from San Diego, California, and are co-hosts of the Birth Queens podcast, hashtag best name ever. <laughs> Ali is a birth and postpartum doula and photographer, and Carly is a home birth midwife and hormone specialist. Between the two of them, they have over 20 years experience and have attended over 1,000 births. Amazing. And I don't see the part about your midwifery finishing school, which was in there a few minutes ago. <laughs> Somebody <laughs> deleted it. And I just want to say that when I read that before, I was very excited. I was like, I love that name. We should have thought about that. Like a finishing school for professionals is brilliant. Totally yeah. brilliant. Yeah. it's. I just find it's really necessary because when I finished midwifery school, I had 80% more things to learn before I was even competent. So I just felt like, why not condense all the information that would have been really helpful for me as a newbie and put it out there for other new midwives. Yeah. I thought about so starting cool. a course once and the most creative name I came up with, it was the gap filler, which sounds like crap. So ah. I love your name. <laughs> sounds like putty that you put like in the shower to plug a hole. Yeah, it was bad. That's exactly the idea that I was going for. It is a gap filler, but yeah. I hear you. Yeah, but you came up with the better name. So we <laughs> love, we're very happy that you're with us and we would love to hear about your story, your business, how you got to where you are. Um, we have a lot of listeners who are birth workers themselves and we also love peeking into other people's businesses, peeling back the, uh, peeling back the uh, layers and seeing what's really going on. So give us a little bit of that juicy gossip. Allie, <laughs> yeah. do you want to start? Sure. So I know, I feel like maybe to a lot of people, we sound the same. So I'm Allie, I'm the doula. Um, and Carly and I have been partnering together on the podcast for the last like two and a half ish coming up on three years. Um, but we both had our own practices before that. And um, I know, you know, I'll let Carly kind of explain her own background. But I always joke that I kind of fell into birth work accidentally. Like I was the kid who like, even if you brought up blood or I thought about it, I would like throw up and pass out. And it was just like, so not my thing um, when I was younger. And, but I ended up seeing my mom have a baby when I was 14, my youngest sibling. And it was like really magical and special. And, and then fast forward to, gosh, almost 10 years later, not quite 10 years, eight years later, I graduated from college and I was looking for a job and I, you know, sitting on my couch watching Netflix and eating like you do when you're unemployed. <laughs> and um, I watched the documentary, The Business of Being Born. And if I'm sure if there's a lot of birth workers listening, you probably have heard of it or seen it. If you haven't, please go watch it. It's a really incredible film that just opened my eyes to the way that the maternity care system works in America and, um, and how you know, terrible it is in so many ways. And 
So I was so fascinated and kind of fell in love with the whole thing. And I did get another job that I worked for a couple of years, but sort of at the same time, I just became that like single childless 22 year old who was like watching birth videos in my free time and talking to my friends about placentas over dinner. They were all like, can we not with any of that? You know, now <laughs> I love it. My husband's like, how does that always come up? <laughs> totally. It does somehow. Um, and now they're yeah. all grateful because they're all having babies. Right. But, um, love it. It was eventually I, you know, I started as a volunteer doula and did that for a while to get some experience and had this like moment of clarity after doing my other job, which was as like a health and wellness coach, um, for a big company where I was sitting at my desk one day and had a couple clients lined up and was starting to get like private clients and starting to get busier. And I was like, it's time. Like, I usually don't have clarity like that. I'm kind of indecisive, but I was like, you're done with this job and you're, you're doing birth work now. And so I did, and it's been about seven years and I think 260 something births for me at this point. Um, and it's been a really amazing journey. And, you know, eventually it led Carly and I together. We met at some births and we're both, you know, in San Diego. And um, so that's my little story. Carly, do you want to give us your rundown? Sure. I also fell into birth work. I think a lot of people start when they have kids and they realize what a big deal it is. But for me, I decided I was going to be a midwife when I was 17 and didn't know any, like I, I knew nothing. I didn't know what I was choosing. I had no idea what I was That's in awesome. for good or bad. Yeah. <laughs> um, but my mom, like my, my parents have eight kids. So I'm one of eight. I'm the fourth. And they had the first six of us in the hospital. So I was born in the hospital. And then my two youngest brothers were born at home. And my mom loved the experience of having a midwife and having home birth so much that my entire life, I never stopped hearing about it. And so in my mind, I just always thought that this was what, oh, sorry, my headphone just fell out. Um, I just always, wow, and now it won't stay in. This has never been an issue before. <laughs> um, but I just always thought that that was what women wanted and that that was the ideal for when you gave birth. And so when I was 17, I, I actually, I went to a year of, of college and I was thinking about studying either art or music. And I came home for the summer and my mom was like, why don't you be a midwife? And I was just like, yeah, sure. Okay. That sounds great. Um, which sounds stupid because I'm never usually that agreeable with my mom, but <laughs> I, I thought about it and I was, I, I just saw all the different aspects that really worked with my personality. It wasn't the daily grind. You always got to learn more. You're working with different people all the time. And I've met a lot of really great people and great friends through my job. And so that was kind of what reeled me in. And then, um, you know, throughout the last 20 whatever years that I've, you know, started, I started school 21 years ago. And so throughout that time, I've just, you know, found different reasons to like keep doing it and stay and like different things that I love. And they're of course really challenging things too, but overall it's, it's a very gratifying business to be in. Very and cool. do you do hospital births? No, I do home birth. Sorry, I should probably finish that. So I started school. I actually did a bachelor's degree in midwifery from the Midwives College of Utah. And I started that when I was 19. Um, there was a school, I'm from Oregon, and they had a, a school called Birthing Way in Portland, but they wouldn't allow you to enroll until you were at least 21. And I was 19 and I was already sure that I was going to be a midwife. And so to me, it just seemed silly to put it off for another two years. Yeah. So I went to a different school, which was MCU in, at the time it was in Orem and now it's in Salt Lake. And so I did my four years there. I, I kind of, actually, it took me six years to do it because I was paying for it myself and I looked really, really young, like a baby. And so I just felt <laughs> like Carly it was still no, looks really young. There, there was I know. I'm trying no to figure point. out how old you are based on everything you've said so far. And I'm like, um, I'm coming up short. Like something's not making sense. <laughs> well, I'm 40. Baby face. Oh. <laughs> yeah, I had a baby face. When I was in college, I would get asked if I was in junior high. Same. Go, That's so funny. Yeah, it was so rude. Like everybody else <laughs> looks like they're 25 and looks like hot and amazing. And I had people asking me if I was going to the junior high up the street. And I was like, aw, womp womp. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I finished school there and I took the national certification test, which is the NARM. And then I decided to move to California and get licensed here and having the NARM um, already done made getting a license in California really easy. Like 
one page application, passport photos and done. So that was how I arrived here. And I do have like different experience. I interned at Casa de Nacimiento before that closed down in El Paso. And I was so glad I had done home birth first because if I, if, if Casa de, de Nacimiento was my only experience attending births, I would not have wanted to be a midwife. Uh, but having done <laughs> home birth before and just seeing how it can be. I was like, thank God I did that first. <laughs> so. Yeah. The how it could be is huge. I think yeah. people don't realize how different it is if they've only had one experience. Like my mom's a hospital birth worker. She's been a labor and delivery nurse since before I was born, but she's only seen hospital birth. There's nothing wrong with it. It's just so different. Right. Mm -hmm. Very, very. Yeah. So I really want to talk to you guys today about informed consent. I know that's something that you guys are really passionate about. I'm really passionate about it. So let's just start by the blanket. What is it really? What's informed consent? Yeah. Um, <laughs> I'll dive on that grenade. No. Yeah. <laughs> um, is, you're right. This is such an important topic and one that um, I speak with my clients as a doula about all the time. And I know that's very central to Carly's practice. And unfortunately, something that isn't often upheld uh, super well in hospital-based settings. Um, not to say that that's always the case, but generally what informed consent means to me is making sure that um, the communication between a provider and a patient or the recipient of any care or treatment fully understands exactly what's happening, the pros, the cons, the possibilities um, of whatever treatment or thing, intervention, whatever it is, is being proposed. And that it's a conversation and a dialogue where there's room for questions and people are given time to decide and, and make the best decision for them. Um, and that, that their decisions are respected and there isn't bullying going on. And of course, there are times when there are true emergencies that informed consent looks different and right. you know actions are being taken just to save somebody's life. I can only speak to what this is like in the context of birth. I know that in other areas of healthcare or um, medical care. Like I, my, my boyfriend is a first responder and a paramedic and a firefighter. And he, um, we talk about this sometimes. And when he's telling me about the calls he goes on, I'm like, well, did you like ask permission to do that? And he was like, <laughs> I mean, the person was dying. So, yeah, yeah. so I'm, I very much understand that my scope and understanding of what this looks like and my expectations of it really apply to birth work. But um, the vast majority of times when somebody is giving birth, it is not an emergency. And so there is time to speak about the pros, the cons. I always talk about the brain acronym. If you're proposed with something, or if a provider says, we're doing this thing, use your brain. So think about and ask, what are the benefits? What are the risks? What are the alternatives to what's being proposed? Check in with yourself and ask, what does my intuition say? And now, do we need to act now? Or can I put this off or wait? So that's my, that's my spiel on that one. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, well, I mean, the thing is, I think a lot of times they, people think they're trying to give informed consent when they're really just telling you what's happening, right? So like my yes. first birth, I remember very vividly, and there's a lot about that birth I totally don't remember at all, but I very much remember them saying, we're going to break your water now. And like, they yeah. didn't give like, that's me- not informed yeah. consent. Yeah. Or even I saying, it. we oh, go ahead. Sorry. I feel like there's different ways that you can phrase it. That's still not great because mm -hmm. when it's a doctor or a midwife, even a doula, you are a person that is perceived to be, you know, in this place of power and this place of knowledge and maybe the birthing person trusts you. So you can really sway things. Do you, would you say that, especially like as a the, like midwife and a doula, you can convince, you can use your powers for evil, <laughs> right? Yeah, if yeah, you want totally. to. Yeah, there's, totally. there's an information deficit. Like there's an information power imbalance whenever you're in a situation like that. And that's just the nature of it. You know, that's why you, you go to a professional, you're, you're at an information right. deficit to any professional that you go to. 
Yeah. So you just have to, as professionals, it's so important that we aren't putting our own shit on the person and putting our own opinions. I like Mm -hmm. to say, like, I don't have, I don't really, I mean, I'm a doula, so it's different. I think a midwife probably does have an opinion, but I don't care what you choose as long as you have the options and you have the information and you are feeling great about it. So what, what would you say? So let's talk about the doula's role here, the midwife's role here. Like, let's say there's client Jenny, whoever, and she is not really receiving great consent from her provider during her birth. Maybe as a doula, you're observing this weird kind of power dynamic. Like, let's say, hey, we're going to break your water now. What's the doula scope here? What should the doula do? What should they not do? Yeah, this is um, certainly one of the most challenging aspects of my job because, um, you know, my, I, I work for the families that hire me and not, not the care providers, not the hospitals or wherever I may be. So my job and my, I don't know if loyalty is the right word, but um, who I am working for and, and why I'm there is to help make sure that they have all the information they need to make choices. And I bet uh, probably most of the hospital births I go to, I see that not happening, whether it's in little ways or big ways. So, um, and it's also hard because you, uh, I want to like not get kicked out of a birth space, right? And I yeah, need you don't want to start kind of, like drama. Yeah, and it's important to look at it as if as if we are all on the same team because I do believe that. Totally. Um, but I also can't just stand by why I watch somebody like one of my clients getting pushed around or manipulated. So I try to be very tactful about it. I, I know that there are some doulas who will just be like, no, she doesn't want you to do that. Or like are, are more directed up front about it. I am very conflict averse. I know that about my birth. Oh my gosh, me too. I think it's better for oh the birth, quite honestly, because I don't think I do anyone too. wants drama at their birth. You don't totally. want to make it about the drama, like at any point in time. Yes. Like, you want to keep the focus on the family who's giving birth. That's that's how yes. I feel too. Like I'm very, uh, what did you say? Like um, conflict family centered. Yeah, I couldn't yeah. think of the word, but yeah, conflict averse at a at a birth. It's just not. It's not for the benefit of everyone. Totally. Um, and for me, informed consent starts with my time prenatally with a family. And a lot of that is discussing how, hey, this is how oftentimes things are presented in labor. A lot of times you will have a nurse or midwife or doctor say, we're going to do this. That is, even when it is not presented as a choice, it is always a choice, except for in that very rare, rare situation where there's an emergency and that will be made clear to you and we'll make sure you know what's going on, but that is so rare. So prenatally, a big thing, if I can like connect with clients early enough, a big thing I talk with them about is choosing a good care provider and a good birthplace. And certainly that is, there's no way to guarantee that, you know, you, you will be heard and everything will be perfect and smooth every step of the way, but who you pick for your care provider makes a huge difference. And, you know, sometimes I have people come to me who, um, feel really passionate and it's really important to them to have an unmedicated or low intervention birth, but they're with a care provider who, has a super high cesarean rate, a high episiotomy rate, like all these things that we just know don't like don't add up to what they want. And so I feel it out, but I try to speak with people and kind of let them know that um, walking into this setting, wanting what you want, but going there for it is like, like walking into a Chinese restaurant and ordering Italian. Like sometimes it's not on the menu. So you need to know what usually happens where you're going. And if we, if you have to stay there, if you want to stay with that care provider in hospital, you might need to put up, be prepared for a lot more advocacy for yourself. So that's what I do ahead of time in the moment. And I do, I always like prep people for this ahead of time, but my, I look at my job as being to point out when I see something that is a choice not being presented that way. So for example, client Jenny or patient Jenny they come in and they say, okay, we're going to break your bag of water right now. Or, okay, we're going to check your cervix right now. And if the family doesn't just say, actually, we want some more time or I'm not okay with that. Or, you know, if they don't kind of jump in right away, 
and advocate for themselves. What I say is, oh, are you okay with having your water broken out? Do you want to talk about the pros and cons and then ha have a few minutes to think about it? So I see my job as a doula as um, like we were talking about the gap filler earlier. I'm like the gap creator, the one that in any situation that isn't an emergency, say, okay, you have the information, you know what the provider is recommending or they want to do. Now we can ask everybody to step out for a few minutes and you can think about it and make a choice without these providers who are in a position of authority looking down at you, you know, or, or whatever, putting pressure on you. Um, so, and certainly that's, you know, it's not always the case where everything that's suggested, you know, we're like, can you leave the room? Can you leave the room? But for those things that, especially if I can tell my client doesn't feel comfortable, I want to create space so then we can speak privately and, or they can just have time to kind of come around to the idea and make, make their own decision. This episode is brought to you by the One Strong Mama program, the game-changing prenatal and postnatal program that prepares the body for pregnancy, birth, and beyond. Based on the Body Ready Method, teaching birth and fitness pros how to assess and train prenatal clients. Go to onestrongmama.com to learn more. Right, that's good. I think sometimes I've talked to a lot of hospital providers and nurses and they always think, oh, the reason they want, the doula wants us to leave the room is so that they can convince the birthing person that we're wrong. And I'm like, mm -hmm. ah, no. No, <laughs> I, not at I all. Wish. So one of my approaches sometimes is, I try to, as best as I can in the small spaces I have to befriend the nurse in a yeah. certain ways. Like, for example, my little sister used to be labor and delivery nurse at a certain hospital. So I'll be like, oh, hey, how long have you worked here? Do you know Emily Pedersen? Like just any little in while let's say the birthing person is in the bathroom and doesn't need me at that moment. Yeah. It just trying to kind of be like, so what do you think we should do right now? Like, like, let's say that the, we think baby's in a weird position, like me and the nurse being like, Hey, what, what do you think we should do? Do you think we should try this? Or I don't know. I just find that sometimes in addition to, you know, all of that work with the family is like, how can we make this a really positive environment where everybody's on the same page? And even if they're not, they like respect each other so that the space doesn't feel so like us versus them. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I feel it's like about there's... collaboration. Yeah. Exactly. Everybody does, every person on the team has something important to contribute. And I'm definitely, I don't w walk into birth spaces feeling at odds with staff or like it's going to be a fight. I try really hard to be conscious about, totally. especially for the hospitals or providers who I haven't had great experiences with in the past, like to try to walk into each space, um, like with an open mind and That's open to whatever this birth is going to present and whatever's going to happen today for this baby and this family. And, um, yeah. And just making, I always also try to be like, please let me, you know, to the nurses or whoever, please let me know if there's anything I can do to help or, you know, just try to collaborate. Cause it is, it's a team. That's so good. Yeah. I'm curious. I, I'm curious so what can happen. I feel like a lot of this is also putting out fires, which is <laughs> clearly like not being set up obviously by birth workers, but what can happen at the other side of the equation to prevent these situations from arising to begin with. So are there, are there groups that work with hospitals to create more of a bridge or to change what's happening in the birth room so that it isn't, do you see what I'm saying? Working. Yeah. Like prevention instead of yeah. trying to manage chaos. Yeah. Exactly. I think a lot of it is just about choosing a care provider who aligns with your yeah, uh, values. That's, that's what it is. You know, I have clients that switched to doing a home birth when the COVID thing broke out. And when one couple in particular, um, they were going to give birth with a perinatologist, even though they were low risk. It was because it was like, it was like a family connection. And mm -hmm. so they were like, oh yeah, let's give birth with this perinatologist. And I think it brings up some really good points about informed consent because um, there are a lot of people, you know, very well-meaning people, um, you know, people who give childbirth education classes and doulas and people who are like, you can, you can refuse anything. 
And the truth is that you can, but it comes at a price and sometimes the price is too high to pay. Right. And with yes. this couple before they decided to switch to me, the their perinatologist was already pressuring them to induce it 40 weeks because in her experience, you know, she's a high risk provider and she's like, nothing good happens after 40 weeks. Probably true if you're a high risk patient. But oh, yeah, that's what you is, see. Yeah. yeah, but for somebody who is completely low risk, like my patient who ended up being my patient, um, that's not that's not the case. And she was really the wrong provider for that couple because her expertise didn't even align with their situation. Mm-hmm. But they were not going to be able to continue to refuse and have a provider that was um, happy with them, that was going to treat them with respect because they were going to defy her. You know, like even just the first conversation they had about, well, like, well, I'm not really comfortable with inducing it 40 weeks. Can we wait? Like visibly, the, the perinatologist was upset uh, verbally. She told them how upset she was and that she was not happy with their choices. So it's not as if you can walk mm -hmm. into a situation with any provider and just say like, hey, here's my list of demands. Because also like that provider does have a lot of experience and expertise, most likely, you know, it could be a total newbie. Um, But they're going to have ways that they practice that they just feel comfortable with, you know, things that they've been taught, this is the safe way to do things. And so you may have a total disagreement. You may not be on the same page at all as somebody who's like, I don't feel comfortable with you going past 40 weeks where you just need to find a provider who's like, yeah, I see it all the time. It's normal. It's fine. Like I don't see a, a change in outcomes. I don't think I don't see a negative change in outcomes. So I think that that's a really important thing to know is that like informed consent is one thing. Choosing the right provider is like the most important thing that you can do for yourself when you're going into a birth. It's like, does do my values align with this person's values. And sometimes it's not even always apparent at first blush. You know, you talk to a provider and they can say, you know, there's a lot of lip service and then there's a lot of bait and switch too, where yeah, first yeah. they're like, oh yeah, 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 yeah. I would love to do a VBAC with you. And then, you know, as you get to 36 weeks, they're like, how about we schedule that cesarean? So, mm-hmm. you know, I, I think that that is the number one most important thing that you can do for yourself when you're planning a, a birth. When you're pregnant, you know you're going to give birth somewhere. What are my values? Who aligns with them? And you're not going right. to get it right every time. You're just not. Yeah. I mean, like I, the example I give is if you are planning a hospital birth, nothing wrong with a hospital birth. Like, and many people should give birth in a hospital. Let's be real. Um, if you are choosing a hospital birth, but you want to decline every single thing, let's say you don't want any vaginal exams. You don't want any you know, you don't want to be monitored to have the 20 minute strip. Like it's really tricky when you are saying no to all these, these littler things, maybe they aren't little, but to say no to other things, you know, like you can't say no to everything and go there. Like then you're, then you're trying to order sushi at the Italian restaurant and they like have no idea how to make it. So, (laughs) um, so sometimes I'll tell people who are giving it birth in the hospital, of course, everything's your choice. But if everything they're serving, like everything on the menu looks awful to you, then there's other, there's other restaurants, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> there are other options. Yeah. And I want to jump in too, because I think that, um, Lauren, you asked a really important question earlier that we kind of glazed over, which is, are there any organizations like doing the preventative work or the, you know, like the back end education? And I think like some sort of, I know that improvingbirth.org and evidence-based birth and even spinning babies and their trainings um, are connecting more with hospital-based providers and trying to speak about these things and, and, you know, including informed consent more and more on the front end or, you know, before these birthing people walk through the door. But also I think that, uh, you know, I haven't been to medical school or to midwifery school, so I don't know how things are being presented, but it seems like there's a huge lack of emphasis um, on the importance of what informed consent is and how to actually do it um, from, from care providers. Like I see it, I've even seen it at home with some home birth midwives, like, you know, them doing vaginal exams without, not only without asking, without telling the person it was about to happen. So there is, um, yeah, I, I, I wish that there was 
something that we could do from the beginning or speaking to med students or residents or whatever. Um, and I, I don't know, I know for me personally, I think it just feels like, well, I don't have any authority, so they're not going to listen to me is like the, the feeling. But um, to, to answer your question, like, I feel like that is probably one of the most important things we could be doing, but it feels like a big, a big, it's ask, an right? you know battle. what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. and I did go to midwifery school and there wasn't, um, there was talk about informed consent. I mean, it's been a long time. There's talk about informed consent, but I don't think it was very thorough. Like um, yeah. sometimes, sometimes like the midwifery model or like idea of informed consent was just like emphasis on the consent, but not emphasis on the information. You know, cause I've, mm -hmm. I've sat in prenatals with other midwives where they've given like really inaccurate information about gestational diabetes, which doesn't give people the informed part of the informed consent, which is, which is crucial. And a lot of times midwives tend to shy away from talking about things that could be bad, hard to hear that sort of thing, because that's something that we've kind of, um, I don't know, bagged on hospitals and doctors for talking about. We, could, we would call it the dead baby card, you know, where yeah. doctors would want to get their clients to do something or their patients to do something. And so they'd be like, well, if you don't, your baby's going to die. I've heard so it. Mid, yeah, 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 for sure. And it's, and it's very manipulative. But in midwifery school, I think that we kind of swung on the opposite end of the pendulum there. And so we, it was really hard to even talk about that stuff in a realistic way. But I think that I mostly learned informed consent just from like interacting with my clients and realizing they're just being an empathetic person and realizing, oh, if this was me, I would want somebody to explain what they were going to do to me first. Like, even though I've consented to it, like, what does this process look like? What is a vaginal exam? What does it look like? And so um, there's an informed consent isn't something just in the moment. Like a lot of times I'm doing informed consent in prenatals where we talk about like, you know, this, is, these are the situations where I would ask to do a cervical check. If I do a cervical check, these are the things I would look for. Um, what do you feel about that? Like, what would you want to know the information or, you know, what, and, and people know that they can decline the, um, the, the cervical checks, even if I request to do one, but I tell them what's on the line. Like if I can't do it, like we might be transferring when we don't need to be transferring. If I don't do it, we might not be taking action that we need to be taking. So, um, yeah, I don't even remember where I started with that point, but there it is. <laughs> but it's a good point. Good I feel like we need to also widen the lens of the word consent, because I think about, and I, I was a longtime yoga teacher, but if you walk into a yoga room and you take a yoga class, just because you've agreed to be in the yoga class doesn't mean that the teacher can come up to you and start adjusting you any which way they want. And often they do. And I feel like we live in a culture where just because you walk into a certain room, you've now given over as if you've given up your right to your autonomy, to your body. And so I feel like it happens in birth, it happens in movement classes, it happens in so many places. And when we train people to think about consent, like I have three daughters and I'm already training them, like consent is all, like anything anybody does to you, it, this is your body. Like it, we almost have to train the client as like, if somebody wants to do anything to you under any lens, then you need to first be okay with it not just at a birth, but everywhere. Yeah. And take ownership too. That's the thing. Like it's sometimes it's hard. It's easier to just say like, well, you're the expert, just do whatever. Correct. Like my first birth, I was pretty young and I was just kind of like, well, I have a midwife. So midwives are good. So they must, That's everything right. they're telling me to do must be what I should do. So sure. And I just, yeah. you know, and that's kind of how midwives are trained to think. It's like the doctors are kind of the invasive ones. Mm -hmm. We're the good guys. And yeah. yeah, there, there is assumed consent, which is what you're that's talking right. about, Lauren. And then there's that's informed right. consent. And yeah, like there is a lot of like assumed consent happ happens on the care provider's side where it's like, oh, I assume because they're here that they're giving me consent to do whatever I wish. Correct. And then there's informed consent, which is really based on the client or the person who's having the experience. Maybe it's yoga. Yeah. Correct. But that's not even how our culture is built. People don't no. think of themselves that way. They don't think they have choices. And in America, it's different. But 
this conversation happening in a different country, <laughs> they'd be like, what are you even going on about? You know, so it is, it is <laughs> right. so cultural too. In some countries, like you don't, you don't question any authority. Mm-hmm. And in America, I feel like we, we do question authority a lot, but especially I feel like as women, we haven't really been well groomed <laughs> to question any level of authority. And it's incredible how it shows up in that moment of birth. Mm-hmm. Like, Absolutely. But you know, I think- when you... Go ahead. Oh, go ahead, Lindsay. I was, I was just saying, say, when you... <laughs> we're both like, awesome. ah! So many people on this call. Out. Okay. This is, the, this is the the challenge of Zoom calls, right? Oh yep. my gosh. You go, you go. Okay. I think something that's been coming up for me as I'm sitting here listening and thinking about all of this, and, and especially for birthing people or families when they're in these situations, is that it it is, at least for me, like and I think most people hard and uncomfortable to question authority or to make your wishes known. It's vulnerable and scary. And when you are in labor and birthing, it's already so vulnerable and your mind is completely consumed in most cases by the work, the stuff that is happening in your body and by labor. And so that makes it hard to fight back if you have to, or to really um, like dig in but I've also seen in so many cases where, you know, uh, uh, something is being presented or a family's trying to be, uh, they, they feel like they're being bullied by the providers, hospital staff, whatever. And when they can like dig in and ask questions and really stand up for what feels important to them, that's so, that can be so empowering. And so I think it's, at least for me, helpful to remember that sometimes like some births in some situations will feel really like smooth sailing, no conflict, you know, like you don't feel like you're being taken advantage of, but for those times where you're, you have this opportunity to kind of step up and defend yourself or your baby. um, If you have good support around you, like it's okay to be the squeaky wheel and to stand up for yourself. And that can be really empowering. And I've heard people speak of it as like, this is the beginning of parenting and all the hard decisions and things that you'll be faced with as a parent. And this is a really good opportunity to like flex that muscle and get comfortable being uncomfortable because you and your baby are worth standing up for. Yeah. I love that you say that. And I've been seeing a lot of people refer to those of us who the squeaky wheels, there's a term for us called which is I've heard this lately called Karens. Have you guys heard that? Oh, <laughs> yeah. Like people, yeah. and I hate it the because Karen, I'm like, wait. So Karen. suddenly, yeah. So suddenly, if you're the person, I think Karen has a more negative connotation. Someone who's never happy with anything and bitching about no, everything. No, that's and, like the can I speak to the manager lady? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But mm-hmm. I feel like there's a lot of negativity around women being. Um, it's not opinionated. I hate the word opinionated because I'm like, wait. So we're asserting what's what's correct for us that makes us opinionated. But there is this really interesting line again. I, and I love that you brought that up, Ali. It, it reminded me of like, I don't know if you ever had these experiences, but as a child, you'd see like a long lost, I don't know, cousin. And your parents would be like, go give him a hug. And it's like, oh, no, yes. mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, yes. and so I don't force my kids to hug, kiss, touch. No, anyone. me either. No. And I think a lot of us now don't, but a lot of us were groomed from childhood mm-hmm. not to question anything. And I think that then when we do question, we're automatically treated like we're the moaning. The Karen. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah and it's so interesting. Totally. And I think that like changing all of this starts really with, like you said, empowering ourselves to be able to speak up even when it's so uncomfortable and when people might not be in approval because they won't be. But I like what, yeah. I like what you guys said about the prenatal prep because when you're in labor, you're not thinking clearly. You're not. Like there's That's no right. way – you're in that monkey brain, right? You're not in that place where you're – you shouldn't be in that place where you're overanalyzing and thinking. So both – I love that as a midwife – you know, Carly, you talked about, um, wait, who's the, who's the midwife? Carly, right? Carly. Me. Carly. Okay. Yeah. I didn't want to make sure I was wrong. Um, <laughs> I love that you talked about, um, how you are even working on that informed consent prior to the birth. Like these are the reasons why I might do this at your birth. 
I mean, yeah, I'm sure I don't want you people do to be surprised. Yeah. I talk about pushing too, because I find that that's another area where there can be like lack of consent and lack of mm. information. Sure. Can you yeah. tell us more about that? Yeah, I want to hear. Yeah. I mean, there are a lot of uh, childbirth education uh, methods that talk about pushing and they're like, no purple pushing, pushing on your back is bad. Oh, like, sure. Breathing you your know, baby out. Yeah. Like breathe your baby out. And um, as a midwife, it, it, it can be really difficult when you're not the person at the perineum or with your hands inside, like, you know, checking. Cause I mean, sometimes pushing does not go very smoothly. And yeah. for me, like, I know that no one else except me, if, if I'm the one who has my hand inside touching the baby's head, checking for descent, like checking to see like, is there something I need to do? Is there something I need to change? Is, does this person have the energy that they need to push this baby out or do they need more help? Is this working? Mm -hmm. You know, and, and doulas, I think, um, you know, a lot of times don't like, no, nobody else besides the person who has their hands in there can really tell what's going on. You can't tell from an outside perspective. And so, um, I think in, in that regard, it gets kind of a bad rap where like, yeah, it's overdone in the hospital, but there have been some really difficult births that I've had where like the mom has pushed for five hours, for seven hours. And, you know, they're, they're barely getting that baby out, but they do because we have to be like really aggressive. But I've seen, you know, when people aren't aggressive with it. And so I see the value in utilizing all the different tools that we have in our box at appropriate times. And right. so I want to make sure that when my clients are, when they're going into labor, that they're not going to be surprised by my opinions about pushing, you know, and if my opinions about pushing don't align with theirs, they're welcome to go somewhere else. But for me, like I, I make it known that like my priority is assessing my clients, uh, the energy they have remaining and the work that they have left to do to get their baby out. And I want to make sure that that's a match instead of like you have 10 hours of work left and you have about two hours of energy remaining. And it's kind of like checking the battery life, you know? And so I want to make sure that people understand that that's how I view pushing because it is such a divisive topic in a lot of ways. But I let them know like why I would do what I would do and that like I don't offer active coaching for pushing unless I see a reason for it. And generally at that time, you know, when I talk to my clients in labor, it's like, okay, I can see that you're really tired. And they're like, yeah, yeah, I'm really tired. It's like, okay, we need to do everything we can to get, get this baby out so that you've got the energy to do it. And like, this is, this is my plan. And even if we're doing active pushing coaching, um, you know, it's, it's, I try to not do it like obnoxious, like the hospital, but still, like sometimes that's a tool that's really necessary and people need to know that every tool is necessary at a certain point. And just like when it's, a, when it's an option that's really going to benefit you and when it's an option that's just going to benefit your care provider. And so that's a really big part of informed consent. It's like, who, who is this option really benefiting? And is, mm. it, is it benefiting you? you know, is it benefiting your doctor because they just want to get out of there sooner? Or is it benefiting you because it's the difference between having your baby in the place that you planned or having to transfer to the hospital? And that's something that I don't, I don't feel like it's fair to talk to somebody about that in labor uh, because they're, they're not going to like fully receive that. Like if, if no. you're tired already and you're at the end of labor and you're pushing, like you're not going to fully grasp. You're going to like, huh, what? And you know, I, I just, I started doing that because I ran into situations with people where like for one example, and sorry, I feel like I'm talking it. Fun, no, this but, is fantastic. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. But with one, when one client, um, she had had a relatively short labor. I think that until she was completely dilated, she'd only been contracting for maybe like six or seven hours. So she had plenty of energy. And when she got to pushing, she was like, yeah, I don't want any coached pushing. And we had talked about that prior to labor. And so I was like, okay, cool. Which was totally fine because she had plenty of energy. But after three hours of pushing, you know, I, I, she was just like, why isn't anything happen, happening? And so I checked again and the baby had made absolutely no descent at all. And so she's just like, okay, what do we do? And so at that point it was like, well, coaching would actually help at this point. And so, you know, we tried a bunch of different positions, midwife forceps, coached pushing, and it took another four hours to get that baby out. And Allie was at that. Oh no, no, sorry. Allie was not at that birth. She was at her second birth, but it took another four yeah, hours. Luckily to that get... second one went much faster. <laughs> first yeah. the way. Yeah, yeah. Allie was lucky. She stepped in for the easy one, but, but that <laughs> first one, it was, it was a lot, a lot of work, but you know, like I, 
I, I always work with what people want. You know, it's just really important that we're both clear on how I work, what the client wants, and that they're, you know, I'm respecting them and that they are also, uh, like, it's not as important that they trust my opinion in something like that. But what's the point of hiring someone if you don't trust their opinion? Right. And so, um, so yeah, situations like that, I find it's really important to prep people with like, this is what I might offer you. And this is why I might offer it to you in labor, because labor is just not a great time to make decisions. If it's something that you can decide on and that you have an opinion about beforehand. That's amazing. That's really helpful to hear. And I feel like no one ever spoke to me and I had one hospital and two home births and my midwife, that that was never a conversation. And Mm -hmm. I I love that you're covering so many bases. We are, um, Lindsay, I don't know if you had any other questions you wanted to ask. I, I do notice that we are hitting. I have so many, time. but I know. Okay. <laughs> we'll do a part two, maybe. <laughs> totally. We would love that. Yeah. So do you guys, um, you have a, uh, you have, oh yeah, you do have, I was going to say, do you, do you sell anything? <laughs> you have a podcast. <laughs> do you, can we somebody do. buy something from you? Yeah, yeah we can your... buy a few things. We've got oh. vaginal steam herbs that uh, we sell a lot of actually for various, um, People buy them for various reasons, like maybe to shorten a cycle, lengthen a cycle, to bring their uh, cycles closer together so that they have more of a chance of conceiving. Mm. Infections, like we probably sell the most of the infection fighters, helps with um, like a, like any kind of, of vaginal smell. Like if people have BV, I mean, if there's a smell, usually it's an indication of an infection, but um, if people are having painful periods, really heavy periods, um, if they have uh, endometriosis, cysts, fibroids, like there's a lot of different applications for it. So we sell those. And we also sell a midwifery finishing school, which is a seven week program that I I created just to give new midwives all the information that I feel I have gleaned that's valuable in my 20 years of attending births. Cause I feel like, I feel like I've learned a lot. Yeah. Yeah. You're the expert. (laughs) (laughs) And they can find they can find all the information for the finishing school as well as our shop on the uh, website for our podcast, which is birthqueens.com and queens is spelled K-W-E-E-N-S. And of course you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, um, Spotify, Google Play, wherever you listen to your podcast. Amazing. I do have one last question. Um, and I sometimes just throw this in whenever we talk to any, anybody. Um, is there anything, so, you know, as a pelvic floor therapist, I'm not a, I'm not a physical therapist, but as someone who works with the pelvic floor and core, there are certain things that I hear yoga teachers say that make me cringe um, <laughs> about the pelvic floor and core. Is there anything, you know, so we have a lot of birth workers who work with us. Do you have any parting advice of kind of um, things you shouldn't do when, when you're at a birth or things that make you cringe, maybe that a new birth worker could really learn from you some wisdom. Oh gosh, there's so Mm. many things. There's so many things. I can't even narrow it down to one. (laughs) I know that's a big one. There's not one one ax you have to grind about a specific Mm. thing you see. Um, No, I think that like lately I've kind of seen some things like threatening type language. I, I think that language is just a big one for me. Mm-hmm. Where yeah, I had a, a an instance where I had a client who hadn't peed, and it had only been like two hours postpartum. And for me, like you know, somebody easily has four hours postpartum to pee unless they have a visibly palpably full bladder. And she kind of used some threatening, like my assistant kind of used some threatening language with my with my client, and I was really kind of bothered by that. She was like, "Well, if you can't pee, I'm I'm like really good with a catheter," and I was just like, "Eh." <sighs> that's manipulative. Like, how yeah. about you just say like, okay, we've got a couple hours left. No big deal. Like, you know, let's try to get you up to the bathroom. At that point, she hadn't even tried to get up to go to the bathroom. And I was just like, let's, let's assess what we say before we say it. Let's think about what we're thinking before we say it. How is it going to be received? And we're not always going to get it right. But I've just heard so many people say so many things that like, I can visibly see someone's crestfallen face or afterwards they tell me like, oh yeah, this person said something to me and I was just crushed at the birth and it like took the wind out of my sails and 
all that. Right. I guess that would probably be my number one is just how we talk to people that are giving birth. That That's is insane. huge. That is yeah. huge. <laughs> That's probably one of my biggest things as a doula that I feel so powerless over because I can't control how information is presented from a care provider. I can try to uh, filter it or reframe it or put a fire out or, you know, but that's, yeah. And then I think as a doula, you know, we don't normally work with other doulas. It's so like, it, we're kind of, I'm kind of in a vacuum. So maybe there's things I'm totally doing that are super annoying, but just don't know yet. Carly, you should <laughs> definitely tell me if you see any of those things. Oh, you're not <laughs> annoying. You're perfect just uh, the way you are. <laughs> but I think like, Every time before I walk into a birth, and usually even before I walk into a prenatal or a postpartum visit with a family, I take a minute, and I take a deep breath, and I try to slow myself down and like detach from whatever I was doing or thinking about. And I have, if you can call it like a little prayer or a mantra, or I set an intention, which is to please let me show up for these people and this baby and this family in exactly the way that I'm needed right now today. And it helps me like connect with them and, and just kind of be open to whatever it is I'm walking into and however I can best show up for them. So that helps me a lot. Amazing. I love that. That's awesome. That's great advice, actually, both of you. Thank you. So it's been amazing talking to you both. Thank you. Your wealth of information. Of course. Thank you for having us. Yeah, it was so fun. Thank you all for listening to the One Strong Mama podcast for birth professionals. If you haven't already, please leave us a rating and a review. We really do appreciate all of the support. If you are a birth worker with an inspiring client, or if you have a birth pro in mind that we should definitely chat with, please email us at podcast at onestrongmama.com. Also, make sure to follow us on Instagram at onestrongmamaprenatal for tips for all stages of pregnancy. And definitely join in on the discussion in the One Strong Mama Facebook community group. See you here next time. This episode is brought to you by the One Strong Mama program, the game-changing prenatal and postnatal program that prepares the body for pregnancy, birth, and beyond. Based on the Body Ready Method, teaching birth and fitness pros how to assess and train prenatal clients. Go to onestrongmama.com to learn more.